This is Concepts, where two pretentious sirs quibble over ideas that explain today's world. Phil Shea and Steve Rose. Welcome to the first episode of Concepts. In this episode, we've recorded it actually in early January, a couple days after the Capitol riots, I believe January 7th or 8th, and we wanted to make sure that we had a backlog of episodes ready to go so that we could release every week. We believe that embarrassment is the cost of entry for most things, and that you have to accept that you'll be bad at something in order to get good at that thing. That being said, in this particular episode, the audio quality is not our best, and there are ums and ahs in there that I have taken out in future episodes. I would go back to fix it, but I fear that if I succumb to this temptation, I will end up editing it forever and we will never start. So please bear with us and know that it does get better after this episode. So thank you for tuning in and enjoy the show. Today is the first podcast. The concept that the Concepts podcast is following is to explain concepts in a conversational way that is approachable using concepts that I think are useful and that you don't generally know about. All right. Some of them, however, you already do know about. So I will probably go over them and you'll be forced to pretend that you don't know what we're talking about. But today I think is one of those, in, in fact, but I think it's a good place to start. So what do you know about the fox and the hedgehog? I just know it's uh, something that you've mentioned a few times because I know your tendency is to want to learn a bunch of new things, kind of like a jack of all trades versus me, which is quite the opposite, where I like to really burrow down into one specific area and learn everything about it. So that's that's kind of my general understanding. Right. That's why I wanted to introduce with this, because it's two sides of the same coin. I'm going to argue in favor of my side, though, so this may be a bit slanted, but <laughs> I think that's fair only because society tends to gravitate towards your side, the hedgehog, because they seem to think that you have to really specialize in, in one thing to get ahead in this world that is hyper-specialized as it is. Would you agree with that? Oh, 100%. You know, they say jack of all trades... Uh, master of none. Exactly. And I, I've kind of bought into that yeah. quite a bit over the years. And I tend to favor my side of that argument and saying, I, I really do see the value in being a, a specialist in one specific area and not wasting your time dabbling. And I can see how that, that perspective is rewarded in society for sure. In what ways would you say that you have been a hedgehog? Well, you already know, <laughs> but the audience, I guess. <laughs> Let me define it first. The original phrase is from a Isaiah Berlin book slash essay. It's only five pages, the one I found, and it was published in 1953. The quote opens with, the fox knows many things, the hedgehog one big thing. Mm -hmm. And another way that we put it is, the fox for all his cunning is defeated by the hedgehog's one defense. The fox being clever, jumping around and being able to find many sources of food can't defeat the hedgehog who has only one defense being his spikes. Hmm. It actually is based off of a fable or there's a fable that mimics that, which is called the fox and the cat. The fox boasts that he has many tricks and the cat confesses to only have one. This is from Wikipedia, by the way, and I will link these things in the show notes. But when the hunters arrive with the dogs, the cat quickly climbs a tree and the fox thinks of many ways without actually acting and is caught by the hounds. Mm -hmm. Though, frankly, I'm not really convinced by this argument. Anyway, back to the question I had earlier. In what way would you say that you are a hedgehog? Well, first of all, getting a PhD in sociology. So anyone who does a PhD has to be a hedgehog in order to actually finish it because you're spending at minimum four years studying the same topic. And if you don't have the tolerance 
for that. And you, you keep getting, being distracted by new projects and new ideas and, and new discoveries that pop up and you're like, oh, I want to focus on the new thing. Then you'll never actually finish your research and write your dissertation and defend it because you're, you're too distracted. So I think it's part of my nature as well and why I was gravitating toward that. But I, I see the benefit of it because being a, a specialist is highly rewarded. If you're really good at something, people will pay you more than if you were just to be okay at, at something because you're, you're doing so many different things. And an example where I've really tried to put this nowadays after finishing my dissertation, I went into the counseling field, so an addiction counseling, and I almost took that same obsession to this field and just endlessly read books or listen to videos on addiction and learning the latest therapeutic techniques and just kind of being immersed in this one field trying to be the best I possibly can at this and taking that same obsession that I had before. So it's it's a personal trait. It's a tendency that I have naturally. And I've been able to see the outward benefits of that in when you can be good at something, people will, will pay for that. Yes. Though while you're speaking about that, I, I remember you telling me stories about how there were PhD students that stay in PhD limbo forever, despite being hyper-focused. Right. So what, how do they factor into this? Well, I think there's a few things. It could be that they are distracted by other interests or projects that they're working on on the side. So it's not necessarily that they're actually hyper-focused. They could just be procrastinating and, and actually not doing their dissertation and be in, in limbo. Or there's a lot of different things like fears that play into that, imposter syndrome. So it's it's not necessarily that they're in, in limbo and hyper-focused, that they could be distracted, or it could be just fears preventing them from moving forward and actually defending the, the dissertation. Well, I do like that you brought up that point because I will come back to that. The first okay. half, the fear one, less so, yeah. but I would argue they are still hyper-focused because they're not actually doing anything else. It's just stuff is stopping them from actually making progress, which mm -hmm. I'll get to later. Yeah. The reason I'm opening this, like I said, is because it leads directly into the format of the show. You being a more focused specialist and me being more of a generalist, I guess I should probably explain my background. Yeah. I studied psychology for bachelors. All of university basically pushes you to continue on to get your master's or your PhD and honestly, I wasn't sure that's what I wanted to do yet. And plus, I mean, I guess I was questioning the flow of things because up to that point, we had basically just been pushed through this education pipeline going through school forever. And the people that were promoting it were people that had never left academia. So I thought, well, I should probably try something else. However, I chose a terrible time to do that. And it was the height of the recession when I graduated in 2011, <laughs> where I floundered for several years. And eventually, because of that floundering, I left to go to China well, actually, first Australia, where I started focusing much more on writing for free, basically, and developed that skill. Then I went to China to teach English. Originally, my intent was Korea, but I didn't qualify for there. And China at the time was taking whoever had any degree, basically. So I went there and hustled my ass off and ended up finding some profitable work that worked out for me and gives me a lot more freedom. So by the standard trappings, you are doing much better than I as a specialist. It's hard to see where we will end up. However, another caveat I would add on to that is compared to me, you are a hedgehog by far. By far. But compared to the the spectrum, however, you are 
actually quite fox-like now that I think about it. Because even listening to your story, you specialized for a bit until you became a PhD. But then sociology does not immediately lend to therapy. That's nope. more of a psychology narrow field, right? Exactly. You want to tell me about your theses as you went along? My first one was fitness and looking at perceptions of what that means in society. Second one was on veterans in transition to civilian life, which has a huge mental health element to it because I was looking at suicide, which does kind of make sense that I went into a, a mental health related field and addictions because it, it really does build off of what I was doing in my dissertation, but in a, in a more practical skill-based way versus just a knowledge and research way. So there is a little bit of a narrative that makes sense. But I guess you're right to say that I've not just focused on one thing forever. I didn't become a sociologist specializing in veterans health issues, which I could have, but rather being a little bit fox-like, as you said, in going into the addiction field. And even beyond that, building out my website and doing the marketing for this, I've actually branched out to understand internet marketing, building a website, a whole blogging thing. So I guess you can say, yeah, there's, there's Fox-like tendencies, despite the huge focus and wanting to specialize. Not to promote too much, but can you tell me specifically what your blog is on? Yeah, it's... Um, it's my personal brand. It's called Steve Rose PhD. Dot com. Dot com. If you want to check it out. It's more about my thoughts on mental health and addiction, as well as reflections on some social issues. It's a huge marketing piece for my counseling services, but also I, I um, do some affiliate marketing on there. It's a specialized topic, but the ability to build a website and do internet marketing, I guess you can say, is a Fox-like tendency of, of having to learn a new skill. Right. Yeah. I would say that you're not on the extreme end of hedgehogs. You're not like mm. the researcher who has no idea what's going on in the news and who just <laughs> obsessively looks at one particular thing. Exactly. Right. I'll also note that I have four different sources that I want to pull from besides the source material before we're done here. And I know we've only got an hour, which after editing, it'll probably be shorter than that. But I would like to start with one of the more popular ones called The Hidden Brain by NPR. They have a dedicated episode to this and I hated it. Really? <laughs> Why? Yeah, I okay, so my my friend recommended the podcast and generally it's quite good, but it's it's like when you read a book and everything is interesting and seems to be on point, but then once they touch something that you're familiar with and have looked into and it's completely wrong from your understanding, it kind of calls into question the rest of it. Mm. The other podcast episodes, maybe I wasn't as familiar or maybe it was just higher quality, but this one certainly was lacking. While it technically is following the spirit of the original idea, the fox and the cat, it basically seems to think that foxes are wishy-washy and need to do pros and cons lists and they won't do anything ever. And hedgehogs are regarded in business school as better leadership material. <laughs> so they saw foxes as small picture and hedgehogs as big picture. However, it also made it seem like hedgehogs are more willing to take risks and foxes are not. What do you think about that? I completely disagree with that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, looking at the two of us. Yeah, I'm, I'm way less or way more risk averse compared to you uh, who, you know, just up and move to China. Not too many people would be willing to take that kind of risk with all the unknowns. Right. And so I, I think that the problem I have with it is they told the story that fit their narrative. And I guess that's probably why, because it was an interesting story. I would check it out for the story because it's about a, a doctor who is very specialized. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the first trans, uh, 
what's the correct term, gender reallocation surgeries. He was one of the first people to do that. And he went to Mexico and did some surgeries there that were questionable in the standard ethics. Basically, he just took a lot of risks and sometimes it worked out, sometimes it didn't. And so they, they follow that narrative, but I don't feel like it actually accurately follows the idea here. To me, it actually made me question their understanding of psychometry or psychometry, which is measuring personality traits and features of mm. psychology. Because it seems to think that whether you're focused on one thing or focused on many things, that somehow incorporates in your tolerance for risk or I guess whether you have charisma because they actually overtly say that hedgehogs have charisma. But I know many specialists and you see them on TV that they focus so narrowly on their topic that they have no other skills like charisma is a skill in itself. Right. So oh, yeah. unless that is your one focus you're not going to be that charismatic. It's huge in academia. You can see so many professors that are huge specialists. The most extreme of hedgehogs exist, I believe, in academia and zero charisma. And that's the stereotype of just the boring, dry professor who speaks in this monotone and does this thing. And there's no charisma there. And no kind of empathy for the audience most of the time. Very little work put in put into the production value of, of that. So not taking the time to learn how to present things in an interesting narrative. If they have a website, you often see it as being just very very bland and bad user experience. Bad user experience. So my my experience of hedgehogs is is a little bit uh, different than what you're you're painting there. Right. Same. Uh, so then I I try to find a another argument of defending hedgehogs because I put so much time and obviously I'm I'm invested in arguing the case for foxes. So I found this post on Medium. It was entitled "You don't need to be good at many things. You need to be great at one." And in which case, I, I found his argument still unconvincing, and, and maybe you can shore it up a bit, but he, he quotes a number of things. Like one, he quotes the superstar effect, which he talks about superstars like Tiger Woods or Michael Jordan, people in fields where their name stands out much more than everybody else, right? And he talked about how they single-mindedly focus on this one thing. Mm -hmm. But then he went on to say how Michael Jordan made much more money than he did in his basketball career doing licensing and doing business after the fact, after he became great, which he calls the superstar effect. I ended up looking it up and the superstar effect has nothing to do with that. It was mentioned in a book called Quitters Never Win by Jennifer Brown, subtitle, The Adverse Incentive Effects of Competing with Superstars, in which she looks at games where Tiger Woods was playing and when Tiger Woods wasn't. These are in um, ranked tournaments. And it showed that actually when competing against Tiger Woods, contrary to what people believe, which is that you would perform better, she actually found that the competitors actually perform worse. Mm -hmm. The explanation provided is that competing can be costly. So if you really push yourself to try to compete with somebody that you don't have much of a chance of winning against, you might actually hurt yourself. And it's it's not a good idea. He also goes on to quote Cal Newport, who you're, I know you're familiar with, who wrote the Love book. It. Love it. Yeah. This is from the book, So Good They Can't Ignore You. Mm -hmm. And he observes... In that book, being the best in a field makes you disproportionately impressive to the outside world. The effect holds if the field is not crowded, competitive, or well-known. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love the book, uh, So Good They Can't Ignore You. I remember mentioning that to you many, many years ago. And you you read it and started to question your 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 past few years of, of being so Fox-like. Because the argument's very strong that if you get to a certain level as the title says, you're so good that the, uh, that people can't ignore what you're bringing to the table. 
you have more leverage in whatever you choose to do. People will compete to have you on their side, whether it's for a job mm-hmm. or, or, or whatever else for business partnerships. So the argument is just bring so much value to the table that you can have so much bargaining power and be successful that way. And I know when you read that, it was starting, you you were like, Oh no, what, what have I done? (laughs) I think there's a little bit of you questioning your own narrative there. Was it, was there not? Uh, yeah, probably. And I, I think that's healthy to do. I think we should take new information and as opposed to how politicians get slammed for it, I think it's called being informed and making informed decisions. (laughs) Uh, I think sticking to your guns when given contrary information is stupid unless you can come up with valid reasons to not follow the new narrative. In that book, I also believe he does address an idea I think called deliberate practice, which I actually was thinking about doing an episode on. He uses that to, I think, dispel the 10,000 hour rule somewhat and attacks it a bit because it's not just simple 10,000 hours doing one thing repeatedly, like playing the same song over and over again, but rather doing very difficult practices that push your limits and constantly expand rather than just staying in a comfort zone. Mm -hmm. I think now I I don't find the arguments as convincing. They're they're still good. And I think that, again, this is this whole thing. The fox and the hedgehog is more of a spectrum than a dichotomy. And I've always been curious about your arguments here. Exactly. And I think this is a useful place to go is you, you started to question, Oh no, what have I done? Maybe I should have specialized. Yeah. And where have you gone since then? And what, uh, what is your argument in favor of, of your, te- your tendency now? And like, what, what would you say to make a, a more complex picture rather than just being one or the other black or white? Like, where are you today with that? Well, I think I was more Fox like then, and that's before I went to China. Mm. That was when I was floundering in a terrible economy, doing service industry jobs and mm. not getting any responses for my constant applying for jobs, except for scammy door-to-door commission-based ones, which I don't do well at and don't want to do and have done. And let's rewind for, for the audience. Let's rewind to, cause I know, I know the context here, like all of the Fox like things you were doing, there was a huge list, uh, how I could run off. Like you were doing, uh, memory strategy techniques, meta mnemonics, they call it. Uh, you were learning, um, pickup, uh, you were, reading philosophy, uh, you were doing, um, I guess locksmithing. I mean, could you add to that list of various things you were picking up? I mean, yeah. And also I'd like to caveat the pickup thing. It was not for objectification of women. It was actually more for personal development because I had social anxiety and going out and talking to women is actually extremely difficult. And so I found based on my psych background that the applied psychology was very interesting, if somewhat fraught at times with misogyny, of course, Mm -hmm. there was still value to be taken away, but you had to sift through a lot of garbage. Yeah. Yeah, it was, it was like a men's personal development focus uh, in terms of uh, social anxiety, I would, I would add. So there was, there was a lot of focus on overcoming the social anxieties, but there's also these, 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 um, these little skills that you were always kind of picking up and, and learning and, 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 and music, I guess was another one. A little bit of cooking. I did pixel, okay. pixel graphic design, like trying to do yeah. pixel art. Uh, I got a little bit of programming. I wrote an ebook for a friend's website <laughs> at his request. There's a bunch of just random things that I ended up doing. I think some public speaking stuff, working out stuff, drawing. Right. I remember that now. The drawing thing. You got into a phase there. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I actually wrote a fable later because of this. Mm. Actually criticizing the, the fox, the extreme fox, that is. 
which was the, I think it was called the the Blind Man, which is about a, a man basically wandering around in this forest that he can't find his way out. And he comes up with this obviously terribly bad strategy of just going where there was clearly nothing. So if you would make some noise and clap, if there was any obstruction, it would bounce back. You can kind of hear it. And so he would find a path where there was nothing in his way, holding his hands out and clapping as he moved. Mm. And he kept doing that, hoping that he would find his way out. Yeah. Ultimately, he doesn't find his way out and he dies from exposure. <laughs> as it turns out, his son finds him in the morning, curled up in a ball in the middle of a clearing in a ring of like really small forest that if he had just gone a hundred feet in one single direction, he would have easily escaped this trap. Mm -hmm. But because he didn't, he was spinning his wheels and not getting anywhere. And that's kind of how I felt and how I, I see some people operate in my life. Yeah. And that's exactly it. So at the time I was, I was looking at you from my perspective and, and, and thinking, is this what's going on? Like there's a, there's so many different things and skills you're learning and every day it seemed like there was something new and that list is bigger than that you just shared there's you know obviously the, the music and then instrument oh, yeah. there's, there's the definitely different more. scales you were trying to practice there's just so many different elements there oh hypnosis because i had <laughs> my, honor, my honor seminar was in hypnosis so i was yeah, kind of yeah. learning more about that yeah so my perspective was like is this is this an unhelpful amount of of different things and, and it looks like you, you kind of came to that conclusion that maybe it was too much and maybe some kind of specialization would get me out of this forest clearing. I mean, frankly, I don't know I could have done any differently just because at that time mm. there was there was, I was trying to find what would be the fastest route to being able to make a living and not struggle just to pay rent and constantly lose money because mm. like I had debts from school and I had multiple service industry jobs and None of them were very good, just sapping my energy and that kind of trap where you go to work and you're just too tired to even do your hobbies, let alone skills when you get home. Like at that particular time that we're talking about, I would wake up at 530. I would have to drive, I think, an hour to a nearby town to work in a cafeteria for eight and a half hours where they wouldn't allow me to skip my break to get out of there earlier. And then I would drive home. I would work out. I would apply to three jobs a day, which was also exhausting because like upload your resume. OK, now put in your entire resume, mm -hmm. then um, eat and I think I would force myself to work on a skill for an hour and then I would have maybe a half hour to an hour of leisure depending on how much time I wasted transitioning between activities. So, I mean, I don't know what I could have done differently at that time. Mm -hmm. I, I don't regret it. And actually, I looking back, it ended up helping me a lot. Had I just sat there and gotten stoned and watched TV, which was part of it, because I mean, like, that was pretty bleak. Yeah. If I had just done that exclusively, then I think I wouldn't have gotten anywhere. And I think having learned all these skills ended up coming back and helping me. And that's actually where I, I now value my fox-like traits. Yeah. But I have focused a bit more on <clears throat> certain things like communication and, I guess, psychology, political science, business. Actually, that leads us to um, Scott Adams, who I'm sure you're familiar with his stuff. He's the artist and creator of Dilbert, yeah. among other things. He was kind of, uh, some regard him as having gone off the deep end because he was praising Trump for his mm -hmm. persuasiveness. But I would say that that's kind of confusing his admiration of Trump's singular skill because he is very good at shaping public opinion and media manipulation. That's, I'd say, his primary skills. And so I think that that he was praising that specific thing mm -hmm. to the exclusion of everything else yeah. because the rest of Trump is not admirable. <laughs> but give the devil his due, as some say. He he does have that skill. But anyway, mm -hmm. what he argues 
in, I think it was uh, How to Fail at Almost Everything and Still Win Big. Mm. And I think you've read that one also, right? Oh, yes. Yeah, I do recall that one. Yep. Okay. He has a, he talks about it in the book, but he also has a post on his website called Career Advice. So badly named, but I, I guess the idea is worthwhile enough and he had a big enough readership. So here's a quote from it. He says, mm. If you want an average successful life, it doesn't take much planning. Just stay out of trouble, go to school and apply for jobs you like. But if you want something extraordinary, you have two paths. One, become the best at one specific thing. Or two, become very good, top 25%, at two or more things. And so he goes on to say, this is a whole post. It's not very long, but I didn't want to read the whole thing, obviously. And he goes on to say, at least one of the skills in your mixture should involve communication, either written or verbal. And it could be as simple as learning how to sell more effectively than 75% of the, the general population, the world. That's one. Now add to that whatever your passion is. And you have two, because that's the thing you'll easily put enough energy into to reach the top 25%. If you have an aptitude for a third skill, perhaps business or public speaking, develop that too. So he says, and this is where I think that you follow his advice inadvertently or consciously, I don't know, Mm -hmm. but you started with one particular skill and then you added Tim Ferriss refers to as connective tissue skills, which I would kind of call meta skills. They're like Mm -hmm. business marketing, basic economics, basic communication skills, things that allow you to promote and market the thing that you actually prefer, like what you're doing with your website, right? Right. Okay. So that brings me into being a little bit more like you and and, and more Fox-like than than initially perceived, where... I, I started along the path of becoming the best at one thing and and then the sociology path didn't really pan out due to lack of job opportunities, tenure track, kind of limited ability to get that. And then out of almost necessity, kind of branching into a different field, becoming obsessed again with that second field, taking in that same passion and, and specialization to become kind of like, as you said, you, you don't have to be the exact best number one worldwide person, you can be in the top 15%. But if you are at at the top 15% of two or more areas, it's the combination that's an exponential benefit because there's nobody else who is top 15% in these two to three areas. Exactly. Yeah. You know, sociology, addiction counseling, and internet marketing. Like, I don't know anyone else, I guess, who is highly sufficient at at three three of those things. Well, I mean, look at your composition, right? Right. So usually you'd see someone who's just uh, been through the mental health or addictions education, or if someone's good at internet marketing, they are maybe just an internet marketer or someone who's in a PhD in sociology goes into the academia route. But to, to really bring those three in combination, uh, I, I, I can see what you're saying there. And that, that's a strong argument for it's being unique through incorporating several things rather than being unique by being the best. Right. Yeah, that's what is known as gestalt, Mm. which is greater than the sum of its parts. Yeah. And I think actually that that essay that I tried to find in favor of hedgehogs actually undercuts himself by mentioning people like Michael Jordan. Because if you think about it, how many Michael Jordans are there? Like there's Michael Jordan, there's Kobe Bryant, and there's a couple other that as a non-sports watcher, I know their names. But I think that to aim to be that person, like you're un, you're extremely unlikely to do that. Like yeah. there's a huge diminishing return in continuing to invest in one skill. You're, you're setting yourself up for failure. Kind of. Yeah. I mean, like maybe you'll still reach like a top percentage, but actually going on Tim Ferriss, 
He uh, has a post called Five Reasons to Be a Jack of All Trades, and he quotes Robert A. Heinlein, um, who is known as the Dean of Science Fiction Writing, and he wrote the novel Stranger in a Strange Land, which people have heard of, but I haven't read it myself yet. It's on my list now after reading that. But he, he has a quote, which I'll read fairly quickly because you can find it written down. A human being should be able to change a diaper, plan an invasion, butcher a hog, con a ship, Sorry, con a ship, design a building, write a sonnet, balance accounts, build a wall, set a bone, comfort the dying, take orders, give orders, cooperate, act alone, solve equations, analyze a new problem, pitch manure, program a computer, cook a tasty meal, fight efficiently, and die gallantly. And he finishes the quote by saying, specialization is for insects. Ooh, ouch. But but hold on. You you seem to take personal offense to that, but like I said, you are not overly specialized. <laughs> I, ag- I agree. I'm actually seeing the more complicated reality here of I don't think I'm an insect. <laughs> and I think if you truly were specialized only at one thing, you would be dysfunctional. And I could, I could, I could, I'm not the most... On a highly functional everyday life person, you know? <laughs> <laughs> like of course I, I, I am a little bit, uh, you know, out of fault uh, specialized, but you know I still can cook a meal. For example, that I saw that one was on on the list. I can cook. You also have a black belt in Taekwondo. I can, yeah, I can clean. I could con a ship. <laughs> whatever that means. I, that's what whatever I that means. I, I mean, I'm at, well, it's a, at least one of my goals is to uh, be a capable boat, uh, a leisure craft operator. But, uh, <laughs> I see, I see, I see the point of that, that, uh, quote, and, and you could actually have a, quite a disability if you, if you can't do everyday things for sure. I mean, the argument, I guess, for proponents of of being a hedgehog would be that you would be so successful at being so amazing at that one particular thing that you could hire out all of those other things. That's a, that's a dream of mine. That, that that I've actually expressed that multiple times to you. Uh, that that is a dream of mine to be able to make so much money off of the things that I'm good at and enjoy that I can hire out the majority of everyday life stuff. Yeah, for real. Yeah, which, I mean, that's fine if you can afford it, but I think the route you're going that is not by hyper-specialization. Mm, okay. It's going in circles. I'm going to stop bringing that up. Yeah. So his his post, Tim Ferriss, that is, goes on to talk about the five points. So he echoes what Isaiah Berlin does in his own essay, uh, which is that Jack of all trades, master of none, mm. is a false dichotomy for one, but... Mm. He doesn't say this, but I will finish it. That phrase actually has a second turn to it, which is jack of all trades, master of none, often better than a master of one. So it's often better to have somebody who is more broadly focused than somebody who is just focused on the one because they might not be able to see other big pictures, which is why I argue that to be a a hyper-focused leader, if you're hyper-focused on your goal, sure, yeah, you need to keep focus on a goal. That's, That's fine. But if you don't have comprehensive skills at all, like then maybe not. Cause if you're an engineer who has also got good people skills and business skills, then you'll go much farther than somebody who's just a better engineer. You'll just stay as an engineer. Whereas the, the diversified person will end up being the boss of the other one. And actually, actually that's his, um, moving into his fourth point. Sorry. He goes from five to one. So it's going from, that was the fifth, the Jack of all trades, false dichotomy. This fourth is in a world of dogmatic specialists. It's often the generalists who ends up running the show. That I think is an important point because leadership requires multiple skills. Yeah. And I see that in the military too, as uh, someone who has experienced multiple lower level roles, 
makes a better leader once they they advance themselves through the ranks because they understand what it uh, what it means to be in each of these lower level roles and they can relate personally to it versus the hired civilian politician type person that steps into a leadership role and doesn't quite understand boots on the ground reality and, and you see that huge in the military where the 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 seasoned a leader is someone who's quite respected versus the politician who's not not at all as nearly as respected. Yeah, I'm not overly familiar with this, but apparently there is actually a role called the military generalist. And they're, I think, as regarded as you were saying, that's why they call them a, a general. I mean, that's an actual ranking in the military. Oh, <laughs> Yeah, that makes sense then. <laughs> I never put that together before. And that's why it's the highest ranking. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I actually had um, extra points for the Jack of all trades false dichotomy one. His argument is that specialists actually overestimate the amount of time it takes to become functionally proficient in something. So you're probably familiar with the 80-20 principle. Yeah. 80% of the things you 20% of the things you do are the most effective things that are worth doing. And 80% of the things are a waste of time. Is that it? Uh, somewhat. I, I feel like it ex <laughs> extends to so many areas, but that is the general yeah. understanding. So for business, for example, 80% of your income will come from 20% of your customers. 80% of your headaches will come from 20% yeah. of your customers. 20% of your workers will produce 80% mm. of your work. It, it's not a hard and fast rule, but it is quite well known. Actually, that's why businesses that start yeah. doing badly and start treating their employees worse are doomed because the 20% that they really, really need are the ones that jump ship and find other jobs first, which just accelerates the downfall. Mm -hmm. He points out that generalists generally, generalists often go up to, but not much beyond the point of rapidly diminishing returns. So basically you start off and that's why I actually, I started this podcast was I believe a lot of different fields have a lot of value to give. If you just jump into them and learn the basics, just the basics will exponentially increase your skill in that particular thing. You can continue investing more time into it, but every additional hour will only get you less and less as it goes on. So for the example he gives is he believes that in six to eight weeks, you can become functionally proficient if you're completely immersed in a language. Whereas the thing is, as he says, specialists who believe that, oh, it takes a lifetime to learn a language. They don't have that sense of urgency, as I think I kind of put a pin in earlier. They don't have that urgency with like the PhD students. They think, oh, this is a really huge task. I have to spend a lot of time and it's it's not something you can rush. So they don't even try to rush it. They don't even try to put any urgency because they believe this must take yes. years and years and years to do. OK, so that could have easily been me with Internet marketing. I could have said there's no point in even trying to learn a new skill because Internet marketers have, have likely spent just as much time as I spent studying my thing and therefore it's pointless to even start and it kind of handicaps you in a, in a way. Yeah, it's it's all or nothing thinking, which uh, cognitive behavioral yeah. therapy kind of addresses. Yeah. Does ACT address that kind of uh, black and white thinking? Uh, yeah, yeah. And cognitive fusion of it has to be this particular way. This is the only right way. Hmm. And you get very uh, rigid and fused to that thought. It's like a sticky thought in a sense. Yeah. And I could see that that playing into the hedgehog's experience of I got this far through this much work. Therefore, everything else must be so much work. Yes. It's kind of like some cost effect almost. Mm -hmm. And just to be clear, ACT is acceptance and commitment therapy, right? Yeah. Yeah. So Ferris goes on to say that you can jump to the top 5% of the general population in about a year of focus on any particular skill. Wow. And that's, again, not compared to all people who do that. If we take 
chess, for example, if you were to focus extensively for a year, you could be in the top 5% of the world, wow. which if you think about it, the top one out of 20 people, that's, that's not actually that competitive when you think most people don't even know how to play chess. Yeah. So you're not competing against other chess players, right? No, no. But you can at that point. And so actually I did the math. Technically, I'm in the top 12% of Mandarin speakers. Oh, wow. <laughs> well, that's only because 12% of the world speaks Mandarin. So I'm in the general population, I'm in the top 12%. And I'm probably not in the bottom few percentage. I might be in the bottom half. But that still puts me in the top like 10% of the, the entire world. Because technically speaking, wow. um, I have a HSK 4, which is what the Chinese government, I believe, requires to be fluent. I wouldn't say I'm fluent. I am functional. But that still is better than like how much Mandarin can you speak? Maybe one word. So <laughs> not functional. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so he also in this point goes on to address the 10,000 hour rule, which he says is actually a gross oversimplification of the research that was done. I don't remember by who. I will also link this this article in the page notes because it's a podcast in the episode, uh, I believe, 19. And he also has the transcript. But he talks about how that's not actually accurate. And it was also... <laughs> It was also popularized by Malcolm Gladwell, the very popular Canadian, actually, writer who actually I'm I question a lot of his stuff because it's very persuasive and convincing. But he's been called out on not representing things correctly or giving false information. And I don't have the exact quote in front of me, but he reportedly said something along something to the effect of I'm a writer, not a scientist or something like that and kind of shrugged it off and didn't I don't as far as I know, he didn't go back and fix it. That may not be true. Still, I, I would take it back if that were the case. But I just think it's funny that <laughs> even that is not entirely true, because with, as I mentioned before, deliberate practice, you don't need 10,000 hours necessarily, though 10,000 hours is also arbitrary because if you if you do deliberate practice, it could be maybe 5,000, I guess, if it's just you just constantly do painful exercises yeah. to excel. Yeah. Or if you just keep playing the same few songs, it could take you forever and you'll never get better. So 10,000 hours doesn't actually stick. It's an illusion. Yeah. It's a quality of practice, not the, the amount of time practicing. Yeah. So I'm going to speed up a little bit because I know you are pressed for time. We only have 10 minutes left of yours. His third rule, as he sees in importance, is that boredom is failure. So to him, he says the opposite of happiness is not sadness, it's boredom. And he talks about this in the four hour work week, another book I highly recommend. It's actually the one that kind of <laughs> set me off to be a little more focused, ironically. He says, uh, in, in general society, your basic necessities, even if you're poor, your basic necessities are generally covered. You have water, you have shelter, you have clothing, and you have food. Mm -hmm. And he said also that wealth itself, while a lot of people have affluenza, as they call it, being affluent, causing them depression and suicide, he says it's not the wealth that inherently causes it. It's lack of intellectual stimulation in that he believes can drive us to depression and emo emotional bankruptcy. And he believes that generalization prevents this, but the specialization and the depression and such can plague specialists because they feel that they need to continually reinvest in the same skill over and over again. Wow. Love it. Yeah. This is, this is very interesting. All, all this, all these findings here. Yeah. And it's really, it's really um, an argument that doesn't necessarily contradict the so good they could, can't ignore you argument. It almost adds to its complexity and makes you question the black and white thinking of the, the fox versus the hedgehog. And it makes it more fox and hedgehog. And I want to bring this back to your own experience because I, I felt a little guilty back then after sending you that book and then you actually... <laughs> agreeing with it and feeling somewhat bad about what you've been up to. 
I think some of that guilt is no longer there because it looks like you've moved past whipping yourself <laughs> in a sense, would you say? Well, I don't think you need to feel guilt about any of that because I think um, it made me think of two things. One, being millennials, we in the graduation point we did graduate at was, well, I went to the workforce. It was particularly bad in terms of economy, especially for my degree, for one. And I stayed out of it through just continued education. Right. So that's what shielded right. me in a sense. And I think Louis C.K. pointed out that, I mean, maybe because of him being like a top performing person in a very low likelihood career, he says, basically, your 20s are meant to be struggling. Your 20s are not supposed to be daisies and roses. You generally do struggle and try to find yourself in those years. And it's just a part of life that you have to mm. come into your own, at least whatever point in life you start going out as an adult. And also I think of the other thing was a blog called Slate Star Codex. He talks about how whatever, whatever message you keep getting repeatedly, you should consider flipping it on its head. So for instance, for me, it was like, it would be like diversify, get a bunch of skills, diversify. Although I wasn't hearing that at the time, frankly, but it, had I been hearing that, hearing the opposite side would have given me a more rounded perspective, ironically making me more Fox-like by <laughs> seeing multiple sides. Yeah. But I think that that was actually something that I needed to kind of round myself out a bit yeah. and to be better informed on this, on, on my struggles. Yeah. And, and so I'm curious where you are today. You said you came to a place where you, you see the benefits in being Fox-like. And although back then it was hard to really see how learning all of these various skills, I know that the big list we had earlier, it was hard to see at the time where this would have been helpful. Uh, you're just kind of grasping just like something, you know, maybe something will stick. And it was almost like you're hugely intellectually curious. So that was part of it, but it was, it was almost a, a desperation to just find something. I'm curious where you came to today uh, and, and how all of these various things have have led to some benefits. I'm glad you asked because that's leading right into his second point, Tim Ferriss, because again, there's two left. <laughs> um, his second point is diversity of intellectual playgrounds breeds confidence, not fear. And I think that that's kind of how it actually helped me by going out and exploring the world, seeing Australia, seeing and living in. Um, so I was in Australia for six months and I lived in China for three and a half to four years, roughly, and Thailand for a few months as well. Been around a bunch of Asia. And in the past, actually, before I had left for Australia, I didn't have any aspirations to travel at all. In fact, it scared me. And that's partially why I pushed myself to do that. So I think by learning more and going out and actually experiencing more, that gave me confidence to tackle bigger problems and learn how to tackle bigger problems. So while right now I do, I started getting into entrepreneurship and do working on my own projects and figuring out how to do bigger projects. That's kind of what led us to this right now, actually. I think that all those skills ended up coming back in some form or another to help me at some point, like designing websites. I, uh, the graphic design stuff kind of helped me with that. And same with programming writing, of course, helps with websites and I guess clarifying your thinking in general. I see writing as a, a meta skill because it not only helps you become a better writer, but a better thinker. Mm. You've probably experienced that. Oh, huge. And not only that, but you, you are actually a professional writer in addition to this because you do, you have your own editing business. Yeah. And I write children's stories. That's my primary income right now, <laughs> which I don't have actually any exactly. passion for. It's just actually, I kind of see it like a sitcom writer because nothing can ever change. Mm -hmm. And you just kind of have to keep practicing writing short plots. So you have to practice that a lot. So that's yet another skill. Yeah. And, and people could be like, why are you wasting your time writing, writing these blogs that are just, you know, philosophical thoughts? 
go, go out and learn a real skill that'll make you money. Uh, and it's ironically that this is the, the primary source of your current income is, is actually writing. I think as long as somebody's taking action on something that develops a skill that you should encourage it and keep it going. It's kind of impoverished thinking to think that only STEM subjects, science, technology, engineering, and math, that those are the only valuable things, which I think that is ridiculous because you need to be able to be imaginative and have other skills to pull it together. Again, those connective tissue skills. Well, he, he argues that like one's subjective well-being, so how, how contented they are, is often based in confidence so and, and thwarted by fear. If you're constantly afraid of losing your house or insecurity of living arrangements or whatever, you tend to not be very happy. But if you're confident that you can do better, you can find another job if you need to, if you can get money if you need to, then you tend to be more contented and satisfied with life. Would you agree? Oh yeah. Yeah. The confidence in your ability to, to, to deal with any uh, unexpected struggle and, and having a, a diversity and competencies would, would lend itself to that. Right. He also goes further though. And he says that diversity of intellectual playgrounds, so just diversity of interest and skills mm-hmm. creates a greater empathy for the broadest range of human conditions and appreciation for the broadest range of human accomplishments. So you can understand better what somebody's life in a situation you've never been in might be like because of your your greater competencies in various areas. As well, when somebody accomplishes something very big, you might not shrug and feel like you lost something because they're getting accolades for it, but you actually feel happy and admiration for their skill. Wow, yeah. No, it's, it's very interesting. Uh, I, like, I like that perspective. Yeah. He also goes on to say, and this um, may be a jab at conservatives, but he doesn't explicitly say that. He says, the opposite is often resulting in xenophobia and smugness by people who define themselves by their job title or a single skill. They often pursue incremental gains out of obligation, as I mentioned before, mm. and not out of enjoyment. They may be more concerned with being right rather than getting results or to the truth when it's to do with their area of competency. In this area, if you were, say, a very extreme hedgehog, even if you knew that I was making good points, you would stubbornly refuse and say, that's wrong, it's better to be specialized, blah, 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 as maybe some listeners right now might be themselves responding. It's, it's almost as if your whole identity is dependent on this particular thing that you are currently doing and have been doing. And you have to, it provokes a kind of rigidity in, in your perspective because everything depends on, on that one thing versus having a bit of diversity and right. leading to a, a more flexible perspective. And think about that for men. A lot of the time they define themselves by their careers and their skills mm-hmm. and aging is not good for them, man. That's why I think the suicide rate spikes for them after they retire. Oh, huge. Also as their competency, as they age, the thing is, as you age, you lose certain skills, but in favor of other skills like wisdom and insight and experience, right? So yeah. it's not a good thing to hyper invest in one thing. I think about even the stock market, literal investing. Mm-hmm. If you invest in one stock, well, you're extremely vulnerable. Right, right, for sure. And, that, and that's that's a really nice metaphor for this, is investing in, in large index funds. The whole market would have to right. to fail for you to, to lose your investment exactly. versus investing in, in Google, which can go up and down. So w- what would ACT call this or what would it have to say about this? This is, again, cognitive fusion uh, versus cognitive defusion. And 
uh, it's, it's being fused or kind of stuck to a rigid way of thinking about things and having that dependent identity would be a highly fused identity and very rigid. Your whole situation is vulnerable. You're, whole, you're, you're vulnerable to any fluctuation in the market. For example, if you lose your job and you have identified with that particular role and you haven't invested any education in anything else, you're highly vulnerable to that versus the diversity lending itself to being less fused to a particular thing. And that's that's what resilience really is, is your ability to move forward despite unexpected challenges. Oh, I was going to say, or anti-fragile, anti-fragility. I was just thinking of anti-fragile <laughs> as well. I didn't want to expand it too too much and have to explore a new concept, but it, that might be a, a concept for another another time. It is actually one that I want to talk about another time. That's uh, Nassim Taleb's idea. Nice. So the final point that Tim Ferriss says is it's more fun, which sounds light and not serious, but he actually says it's more fun in the most serious existential of ways. His belief, and he is definitely a very diversified person, he says that it maximizes the number of peak experiences that you can have in life. Things that make you feel amazing, like having a child or accomplishing one of your life goals. It allows you to have more of those because you're not just focused on one thing and invested in one particular thing. Yeah, that's that's huge. I'm loving this uh, this Tim Ferriss counterbalance to uh, Cal Newport. It's a, it's a nice dialogue. Yeah, you can see why the four-hour work week really had a huge effect on me when I read it. I believe there's a quote here. He says, he or she also learns to enjoy the pursuit of excellence unrelated to material gain, all while finding the few things he or she is truly uniquely suited to dominate. And I think that's definitely true as well. And that's that's, that's really good advice for people in, in the beginning of their careers or in their 20s when they don't quite know what to do yet. And they're constantly being told throughout high school, keep as many options open through high school because when you get to university or, or any post-secondary education after that, you're going to be starting to close doors and narrow and narrow. And by the end of your post-secondary education, you're almost expected to have closed a lot of the doors and now you're expected to know exactly what you want to do and then to logically step into that role. And I think that's a point you've brought up with millennials. We've challenged that in a way that we are gathering more skills because we don't have the stable, predictable job job markets of the past. And it's really good advice to, if you don't know what you want to do because there's so much uncertainty, is to try new things, is to explore. And how else would you know what you're good at or what you enjoy if you haven't actually experienced a lot of different realities. Otherwise, you're just kind of stuck in your head planning. Oh, well, I like this. I don't know. And the unknown unknowns of just trying to rationalize your your life path versus getting out and, and trying things. And it looks like that's the path that you, you took. And I, I did to my own extent, but trying various things. Right. To a lesser, but still substantial extent compared to most people. Yeah. Trying various things. Also, I would like to, I would like to define millennials because it seems that the, the news is often confused. Yeah. It just is in their mind, any stupid young person. <laughs> However, millennials, millennials have a defined year range and that is from 1981 to 1996. We were born in 88. So we're 32 now, but our, the age range is 23 to 38. So it's not anybody. It's not teenagers today. Those are Gen Z. We are a 
predefined generation, just like Gen X before us. Another thing I, I thought of when you were saying that is Sylvia Plath's idea of the fig tree, yeah. which is the opposite. This woman is sitting in a fig tree and each fig she examines, she sees a potential future. Like I could be an actress, I could be a drummer, I could be a great uh, whatever, this or that. And she takes her time perusing them so long that they start to over-ripen and fall off the tree and rot. And she's left with no options. Mm. <laughs> so I don't know. I think that's, again, too extreme into the side of being a, a fox. I think that if I were to give advice, it would be contrary to yours. And what would that be? <laughs> what you just said for high schoolers. I'd say, yes, keep your doors open. But I would say actively pursue hobbies and skills and develop them and see if they are to your liking. If they're not, then move on to something else because that's the time to do it. But I wouldn't say keep shifting forever. There's apparently a mathematical solution to dating, which was you should go on. I think it's 10 dates, 20 dates and rank them how uh, matched you felt you were and get an idea of what you want. And then after that, the next person that's a rank eight or above, stop looking and, and grab that person because the chances of finding like a 10 is extremely low. And after that sample, you have a good idea of what might be out there. <laughs> At least that's that's the theory. And, and I don't think our advice to, to high schoolers or, or people in early career are different. I uh, I think it's exa- I said exactly what you, you just said is try different things and to find out what you like. And when I when I mentioned closing doors, it was pretty much uh, in, in context of we're expected to close doors. We feel pressure to do that uh, every time you, know, you choose your degree uh, or, or whatever college program you would like to take. You're closing a ton of doors and right. the expected narrative is that, OK, and now you are just going to be doing this. The advice that in high school, the reason I might have misinterpreted you was because in high school, the advice that I was constantly given was don't close any doors, keep doors open, don't burn any bridges. Yep. And then it changes in university. Nah, they didn't talk about it as much to me than like high school. They actually seem to care. And as they say, university professors don't yeah. don't care whether you show up or do what you need to do or not. Exactly. So yeah, the advice in high school is take the highest level classes so that when you get to the end of your high school career, you can choose whatever university program or university uh, you want. Hmm. And then from there, the advice kind of changes. It's like, okay, now you've chosen that degree. It's like the jumping off point of keep your options open until you can make, so you're, so you can optimally make the one choice. Right. And like, and that's where you now are expected to close doors. Which you're totally equipped to make at that age. (laughs) Exactly. And then there's a lot of pressure at that point because you don't feel equipped to be making that, that momentous decision of, okay, this is the one I kept all my doors open. I took math classes, even though I hate math, just so I can maybe get into whatever program I want. And now you're going to close the doors kind of all at once, almost all at once. Yeah. And also like take on massive amounts of crippling debt, which you have no experience with or any way to fathom. Great. Yeah, it's huge. And all and all at once. It's not like a gradual like, okay, just take a general, you know, go in undeclared and then take a few courses and then you know, and it's kind of expected that you're you're not going to do that. You, you have to choose and it's that big decision. I think both of our advice is to not let that narrative be crippling and in the the social narrative of you must grow up and become a hedgehog. And I I do love hedgehog tendencies. I I, I think that can be crippling for people who are younger and entering the job market so that are both of our advice to try new things and experience to find out what you actually like. At the same time, you could be taking a specialized program, but volunteering at various different 
agencies or, or places that you could explore related interests that are not necessarily exactly the one you're, you're being educated for. Right. Like Toastmasters. <laughs> right. That was another one that just came to mind. Right. Yeah. Okay. So there, there's a few <laughs> closing points for that particular thing. And then I have a closing for the overall thing. Okay. So, sorry, closing points for Tim Ferriss and then overall closing points. So Tim Ferriss, he says that the curious generalist often measures life in quantum leaps. And that's actually a concept that I've proposed a couple times from video games, actually another area of interest of mine. And that was in level ups. So like I've noticed that because I've focused on various skills and I'm more of a generalist that does what he kind of describes at the 80-20 rule, I have noticed that there are random leveling ups of experiences or experiences of leveling up for different skills. So I remember for Mandarin in particular, I was living in China and studying that. Every once in a while, I would wake up and suddenly I could understand more of what was being said around me. The day before, it felt like just whatever, the same level of miscomprehension. And then suddenly I can understand much more. It just was much clearer for no explicable reason, just something clicked. I've found that in a number of different areas. Actually, recently it was with rhetoric because like I'm, I'm starting, I've said this to you before. I don't know what happened, but suddenly I'm able to see when people are kind of getting off the argument and trying to come up with a kind of straw man, mm. which I'll, I'll cover that one another time. It just means misrepresenting your argument in a weaker form and then making fun of you for saying it, even though you didn't. And if it's really such clever. such a fox. Yeah. And if it's, <laughs> There's so many different concepts that are coming. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, that's kind of why I thought this would be an interesting podcast for people. It's interesting dynamic between us and, and my tendency to want to focus on one little thing and just to stay there. <laughs> and I'm going to have to keep like driving it forward. Yeah. So my take for this was that if I'm the same person after a year, then I feel like I've probably wasted that year. And if we think about it, we only have like, I mean, the first 10 years of our life, we don't have much conscious choice and even maybe arguably the first 18 years. And then suddenly we have a lot of choice, but the average age is what, like 80. So that's uh, bad at math, 62 years. 62. And if you had only 62 for a lifetime of any resource, you would probably be much more stingy with how you just throw them away. And so I feel like you, we should always be pushing ourselves to learn new things and read random books from random topics. Like I have one queued up to read about seeds. <laughs> I don't know anything about botany and that's basically why I'm, I'm going to read it. Wow. So random. Just to close Tim Ferriss's points, he said, leadership generally requires more core competencies. In closing, be too complex to categorize. Ooh, love it. Yeah, it's nice, eh? I'm going to go back to the original author, um, Isaiah Berlin. Quote, I never meant it very seriously. I meant it as a kind of enjoyable intellectual game, but it was taken seriously. Every classification throws light on something. He actually goes on to use Tolstoy as an example throughout his essay and and finishes the essay by asserting that Tolstoy was by nature a fox, but by conviction a hedgehog. He was actually like my former self. He was a fox by nature and chastised himself for not being a hedgehog. And Berlin goes on to say that the division within himself caused him great pain at the end of his life. So Berlin pushes in his original essay that it's, it's also a false dichotomy. He agrees with Tim Ferriss. He believes that following it dogmatically will lead to absurdity. It'll be just ridiculous because if you're too fox-like, you don't you don't focus on anything and you're barely competent at any one, too cat or hedgehog-like, then you can only do one thing and you're basically handicapped at life. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 
And so I, I guess my takeaway is in short, lean into what you are, but consider a little diversification into the, at least into the connective tissue skills, as Ferris put it, to increase your chances of excelling. In Berlin's words, like all distinctions which embody any degree of truth, it offers a point of view from which to look and compare, a starting point for genuine investigation. Love it. I think that's a great closing. So thank you for, uh, for listening to us. And thank you, Steve, for giving me time out of your very busy schedule to discuss this. Very nice advice. So it's been a great conversation. And uh, if you're, yes, if you're still here, thank you for having the spinal fortitude to, uh, to put up with it. <laughs>